Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 10th, 2021. And as I browse the headlines in the online newspapers and magazines uh, today, everything seems to be about the law, as so often in America. Um, the New York Times is leading with a, the rejection of a, of a judge of Trump's bid to keep uh, his papers secret in the January 6th inquiry. Um, lots of news continues about the Texan abortion law. This this headline is about a state district court judge hearing over a, a dozen challenges to the um, to, to to the Texan uh, supreme law. Uh, but more than just abortion, abortion, of course, is the thing that everyone in legal circles is talking about. It's not just abortion, um, according to Dahlia uh, Lithwick, that is in what she calls the crosshairs of the Supreme Court. Uh, more and more talk and controversy about the Supreme Court possibly uh, being poised to expand Second Amendment rights uh, and strike down the New York handgun law about what you can and can't carry. This from CNN. Um, this issue of our right to be armed came up in the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case um, and lots of concern out here in California about how uh, the Supreme Court gun case could affect not just New York, but also California, where I'm from. Um, many other issues as well. Um, the Supreme Court today uh, is weighing a condemned man's wish for a pastor's touch when it comes to uh, death rights, uh, or, or at least rights on death row. And even uh, Biden's vaccine workaround is now perhaps being looked at by the Supreme Court as uh, being questionably constitutional. Supreme Court then is everything, and perhaps America's leading authority on the Supreme Court, I'm thrilled and honored, is my guest on the show today, Linda Greenhouse, is well known to many people in our audience. Uh, as a longtime authority, uh, she teaches at Yale Law School, she writes for the New York Times, she's in the media continually. She has a new book out on the Supreme Court, uh, Justice on the Brink, um, Death, uh, Ruth Gader Ginsburg, um, Amy Coney Bryant, 12 months that transformed the Supreme Court. And I'm thrilled that she's joining us from her home um, in New Haven today. Um, Linda, welcome. Thanks, boy. That was quite an array of... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's... Uh, I... Uh, I uh, I've been married twice, Linda, and both my wives went to law school. So that's about as much law as I can stomach for today. Um, your book, this, this wonderful new book, um, is about 12 months, Justice on the Brink, um, that you believe may change not just the Supreme Court, but everything about America. Tell me what's happened over these 12 months that you write about in Justice on the Brink. So the book is really a chronicle of an amazing term of the Supreme Court, the term that ended last this past July. Uh, starts with the end of the previous term, which found uh, Chief Justice Roberts in total control of the court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive. 
uh, the chief really had the controlling vote with four justices to his left, four justices to his right. Uh, in September, Justice Ginsburg died. Before she was even buried, Donald Trump announced the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. People were already voting in early voting states on the presidential election. And she was promptly confirmed without a single Democratic vote and put on the Supreme Court. So, you know, I started the book with this, this head spinning sequence of events. And the question that I end the first chapter with describing what I call the triumph of John Roberts in the previous term was, is it still going to be the Roberts court? Or is it the Trump court with three Trump appointed justices now sitting on the Supreme Court? How apocalyptic is the book? I mean, you're, you're clearly a pessimist. You're writing as a progressive from the left. But I've lived in America now for 30 years and it seems every, every few years there's a fear that the Supreme Court is about to return uh, America to a kind of... Uh, conservative barbarism. Um, is, is today's crisis different from other crises? Well, of course, we, we perceive it as a crisis uh, from the progressive side of the street. I think from the other side of the street, it's a fulfillment of a very long range plan that has led to this moment. Conservatives have never taken their eyes off the Supreme Court and off their goal of capturing the Supreme Court to be able to do through law, through judicial intervention, what they couldn't do in just plain old politics because there's not a majority of the public behind ideas like overturning the right to abortion. A strong majority doesn't want to do that. Uh, there seems to be a majority on the Supreme Court that does want to do that. And, and so, you know, you and I perceive this as a crisis. It's, I think by objective measure, the most conservative Supreme Court since the 1930s, that is to say, since the memory of pretty much anybody who's, who's still alive today. What issue do you think captures this conservative court? You had a lovely piece in the New York Times uh, earlier this week entitled, uh, Do Gun Rights Depend on Abortion Rights? And, and then you say that's up to the Supreme Court. And you make it clear in the piece that... Um, that abortion rights and gun rights have become oddly in a kind of almost in a surreal way connected. Is it the issue of gun rights or abortion rights? Do you think that we will ultimately remember this court? Well, and, and let me throw in religion too, because uh, my book really chronicles a turning point in the court's uh, assessment of the appropriate relationship between church and state. Uh, there were a couple of cases where once Amy Barrett came on the court, the court overturned uh, public health measures in the COVID pandemic that were aimed at keeping too many people from being close together at, at, you know, for a long time in an enclosed space, that is to say in a worship service. And the court overturned these as violations of uh, free exercise of religion. So, so yes, abortion guns and religion, I think, are um, what, what this coming term, the term that began on the first Monday of this October, is going to be remembered for. Uh, and let's add to that, uh, Trinity, uh, what about voting rights? I took a piece about the, the new dark ages are upon us, according to some Virginia Democrats who believe that um, 
the Senate Republicans' decision to block debate on a third major voting rights bill. Uh, and we have a couple of headlines. Why on earth are Republicans still blocking voting rights bills? That voting rights will be added to this trinity of issues uh, which the Supreme Court will re help reshape America. W what about voting rights? Uh, yes, at the very end of the past term, uh, this last summer, uh, the court had a chance to protect, maybe even strengthen, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And uh, instead, it substantially weakened that law by upholding a couple of vote suppression measures in Arizona. So I think that tells us that um, the congressional lockup, uh, tragically congressional lockup leading into the next round of national elections, um, is not going to be uh, saved by by the Supreme Court. It's uh, our politics are going to have to sort this out because the court obviously will not. Uh, Linda, as I said, you're a you're a columnist for the New York Times, and the review of the your book in in the Times was interesting by Noah Feldman, who's actually uh, was on our show last year. Um, he liked the book, but he said that. Three things happened or three things didn't happen in 2020, which he thinks perhaps speaks to a slightly more optimistic take on the future of the court. He says that the court didn't invalidate the Affordable Care Act, uh, didn't reverse 30 year plus of First Amendment precedent by creating a constitutional right to automatic exemptions from neutral, generally applicable laws. Um, uh, what, what, what would you, what do you make of that in terms of what the court didn't do in the, in the period that you write about? Yeah. You know, um, I, I've done my share of book reviewing and rule number one for a book reviewer is, uh, review the book the author wrote, not the book you think the author should have written or that you would like the author to have written. But does Noah have a point? Uh, actually, no. Um, because I think that's a failure to understand what happens in any given Supreme Court term, which is the court decides the cases it has previously agreed to decide, and it sets the agenda going forward. Cases that are not taken early enough to be decided in that term, but for instance, the abortion case, the Mississippi abortion case is gonna be argued on the 1st of December. So as my book chronicles, uh, this petition reached the court in the summer of 2020, the court didn't decide to grant it and hear Mississippi's appeal of its 15-week abortion ban until May. The court took it up in their private closed-door conference week after week after week. Obviously, there was a big debate going on because the court doesn't have to take any particular case. And finally, they decided to take this one. Okay, Gun rights. The petition comes in and after a few weeks, the court takes the gun rights case. So in other words, this coalescence of conservative justices that happened in the term that my book chronicles is what led to the agenda that is now playing out before our eyes in the kind of headlines that you're putting up on the screen. So, uh, you know, to say this was a term where nothing much happened is, is um, I don't want to be harsh, but it's, it's a very superficial uh, take on the matter. Linda, is there a a legal central committee for all this, formally or informally? 
Often these things are presented as plots, as coherent political movements to seize control of the court. Um, or is this just somehow political spontaneity and and particularly the conservatives on the court and the conservative movements, they're all drinking from the same well, so they all know what the other hand is doing. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it a, a, a plot, but, you know, there is this entity that people have heard about called the Federalist Society. So the goal of the Federalist Society, when it was founded um, back in the early 80s, was to grow the next generation of conservative lawyers and judges and to propel conservative-minded law students uh, into law practice and from law practice into the judiciary. That is coming to fruition. That has come to fruition. Donald Trump, I don't believe, nominated anybody. And he put 200 judges, life tenure judges on the federal courts, uh, anybody who had not been vetted by the Federalist Society. And in, in the book, I talk about the origins of the Federalist Society and Amy Coney Barrett's relationship to the Federalist Society. So, uh, you know, I don't want to be overly conspiratorial. There was nothing really conspiratorial about it. It was all happening in plain view for anybody that thought to, to look. Uh, but I think that's a big piece of what's gotten us to where we are. Is there an equivalent on the left amongst progressives to the Federalist Society? Uh, no, there's not. Uh, there's an organization called the American Constitution Society, but compared to the Federalist Society, it's very underfunded. Uh, you know, it's had some influence in the Biden years. Uh, President Biden so far has actually been enormously successful in getting uh, really good people nominated and confirmed to the lower federal courts. And, and I think the American Constitution Society has some involvement in that. But uh, you know, progressives have never been as kind of one-dimensionally focused on the courts as conservatives because progressives really have a broad legislative agenda. I mean, you mentioned voting rights, you know, and uh, civil rights generally, and, uh, you know, the big infrastructure plan and education and so on. So uh, they're actually more interested in working through the political branches, but it's almost as if the conservatives have kind of given up on the political branches and think the court's going to do all the dirty work. There's almost a Leninist quality, I guess, to the conservatives in their focus on power, but it's very effective. And I guess progressives need to respond or they'll be crushed. Yeah, progressives need to um, keep their eye on the ball because, uh, uh, you know, it's a difference between strategy and tactics. And uh, conservatives have had the strategy, have had the attention span, and they've had a lot of good luck. Uh, you know, uh, they've had much more opportunity to name people to the Supreme Court. I mean, Jimmy Carter, for instance, had no Supreme Court vacancies during his four-year term. Donald Trump had three. Well, of course, one of the vacancies arose during the Obama term, and Mitch McConnell wouldn't let it get it filled. But Trump was able to name three justices. So there's been a, a real disparity. And um, as I say, part of that is just, is just good luck. Do you think God might be conservative? Might that be the reason why Jimmy Carter didn't get a shot at this and Trump got three shots? I'm going to keep God out of this. 
But in all seriousness, Linda, there's been a lot of criticism, including I, I think some of the stuff in in in, you, in your book and in some of your writing about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, clearly a remarkable woman, one of the most remarkable women in American history. But do you think, um, in retrospect, it was easy, of course, in retrospect, in retrospect, she should have resigned before uh, she died on the job? Well, you know, in retrospect, Hillary Clinton should have run a better presidential campaign. I mean, you know, hindsight is, is easy. Uh, I think Ruth Ginsburg placed a bet, turned out to be not such a good bet, but it's one that I think a number of us would have made, which was that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected in 2016. And so there was no urgency for Justice Ginsburg to retire, despite the um, the male professoriate that started telling her to retire back around 2010. Um, and, you know, had she been able to hang on for four more months, President Biden would have named her successor. So, you know, it's, it's easy to criticize, but I, I, I don't think it's a very productive uh, uh, kind of kind of discourse. Linda, there are two Remarkable women at the heart of your book, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we just talked about, and Amy Coney Barrett. Do they have anything in common? Obviously, politically, they don't. They have anything in common. Um, Well, you know, I have to assume they both love the law. Uh, Amy Barrett uh, devoted the whole first part of her career to being a law teacher. Um, you know, I, I think she, uh, uh, her scholarship was interesting. Um, you know, I think they're both, they, they were both, uh, animated by, um, doing what they thought was right. I, 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 I don't take anything away from Amy Barrett just because I don't happen to agree with probably most of what she, what she stands for, but, um, but she certainly led a, uh, you know, commendable career so far and age 48. She's now on the Supreme Court. You wrote, you had an interesting piece uh, in The Atlantic, uh, What When Dissent is All There Is, um, and the subtitle, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Career Offers a Lesson for Today's Supreme Court in Terms of Resistance. In that sense, is uh, Sonia Sotomayor, is she the key figure now? Uh, in terms of intellectual resistance against this conservative court? Well, I've called her the the court's truth teller. And what I mean by that is she's the one, and and Ruth Ginsburg played that role uh, in in the later years of her career, who's willing to call the court out. And in, in, you know, very striking, quotable terms. So, you know, in the book, I, I spend quite a bit of time on the astonishing series of executions of federal prisoners that the Trump administration carried out in its last seven months after the federal government had gone for 17 years without executing a single person. And it was Sonia Sotomayor who really put the stamp on that when she ta- when she called it at the end, as she wrote in dissent from the court's refusal to uh, grant any kind of relief to the to number 13, Uh, four days before Trump was leaving office, she talked about the expedited spree of executions. I mean, what a well-chosen phrase. So she has had the ability to, uh, you know, crystallize the situation for those of us who have been dismayed by what we 
seen in our politics and in our in our courts uh, these last few years. A lot of talk, at least in my circles, about the need for Briar to call it quits, and move on, just to so that we make so that so that make sure that Biden appoints. Uh, um, uh, a replacement to him. Here we have a headline from CNN. Breyer says it's now not the time to lose faith in the Supreme Court. It's not, of course, for you to tell Breyer what to do. But do you think he's right about losing faith in the Supreme Court? Do you think we should, particularly progressives, have faith in this court, even though at the moment, in political terms, the um, uh, the, the conservatives are in control? Well, you know, I think there's an interesting generational divide, actually. It, it's really quite interesting. I think older people like Stephen Breyer and uh, colleagues of, of mine who sort of came of age in the knowledge, maybe in the shadow or aftermath of the Warren Court, where the, that court really uh, harnessed the Constitution as an engine of social change and progress. And so you know, that built in a certain mindset about the court. The younger generation hasn't seen that because ever since Earl Warren retired uh, and Richard Nixon in 1969 appointed his successor, Warren Berger, uh, the court has been backsliding in, in, in many respects. I'm oversimplifying, but, but basically it's been at, at, at best a holding action. And so the younger generation hasn't come up with that kind of built in sense of the majesty of the court, you know. Um, and that's playing out now in, in what people think and what they're willing to say and what they think ought to be done about the Supreme Court today. Linda, you mentioned John Roberts earlier. Uh, I'm curious, again, from a, a progressive point of view, is Roberts a wolf in sheep's clothing or a sheep in wolf's clothing? Well, I think he's in a really tough spot is where he is. Uh, you know, he's got now five justices to his right, which is remarkable. He's a very conservative judge. But he I mean, cares. I mean, my, again, very amateur reading of Roberts is he does care about the court and the Constitution. Is that fair? Well, yes. I mean, for one thing, his name is on the door, you know, it's the Roberts Court. Uh, I think every chief justice realizing that uh, he, I say he, we've never had a female chief justice, is, becomes a figure of history the minute he takes the oath. And in, in Robert's case, it was 15 years ago, 16, 16 years ago, 2005, amazing. Uh, so, you know, there's a built-in sense that the welfare of the institution is in the hands of that individual who is not the proper title. And a lot of people get this wrong. I'm not saying that you did. Uh, it, it's not uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, it's Chief Justice of the United States. So he's in charge of the entire judiciary, and it's it's a very awesome uh, place to be. So yes, I, I, I'm sure that John Roberts cares about the institutional welfare of the court, worries about the court, uh, is not on board with the aggressiveness of some of the justices to his right. So really, the interesting kind of human story uh, that you know I think my book chronicles and is certainly with us in the current term is on um, what's he going to do? Who's he going to affiliate with? You know, he's no liberal, he's no progressive, uh, but yet he cares. And, and if he thinks those on his right are about to drive the court off a cliff, 
uh, what's he going to do? And that's part of the drama of what we're going to see this year. And it is a drama. Linda, a couple more quick questions. I know you've got to run. Um, one of the nice things about the court in terms of these lifetime appointments is it seems to seems to bring out very interesting intellectual journeys. So, so Roberts began as a conservative. He's certainly inching towards the center. Where are you in terms of appointments for life and indeed expanding the court? I know this is a rather abstract issue, but very few people in America know more about the court than you do. Yeah, well, I guess I've said publicly that I think um, life tenure is problematic at this point. You know, ours is the only constitutional court in the world that has life tenure, as opposed to a term of years or an age limit. Um, of the 50 states, only Rhode Island has life tenure for its high courts. So life tenure is really an anomaly, and it has, you know, created a lot of, I think, political problems for us with the, the randomness. We talked earlier about, you know, Jimmy Carter got no appointments and, and, and Trump had three. So I, I certainly think there's a case to be made for getting rid of life tenure. The question is, it's very difficult to do that. I think the better the arguments is it takes a constitutional amendment. And and our constitution, I think, is the regarded as the hardest constitution in the world to amend. So that's really tough. Expanding the court, I mean, that can be done by simple legislation. Congress has the power to do that. But can you imagine this Congress doing it? So, uh, you know, as, as you say, these are rather abstract uh, discussions at this point. Yeah, and, and I imagine the Congress of 2022 will be even less enthusiastic about expanding the court. Very briefly, a couple of, we haven't talked about it ever. We've, we've talked about um, Barrett and Sotomayor, Roberts, a couple of other sort of inside the, the court questions for you, um, uh, Linda. Uh, we had um, we had Randall Kennedy uh, on the show recently, the Harvard University law professor. And one of the things that came out of his new book is he's essentially written off Clarence Terum, Thomas. He says, I've had enough of him. I, I, I don't want to even pay him lip service. What's your take on Thomas? How is he going to be remembered? Well, that's an interesting question. He'll be remembered, I think, as somebody who went his own way on the court and 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 kind of pursued uh, notions that when he first offered them were seen as uh, eccentric. And, but yet he um, collected around him a lot of acolytes, many of whom ended up in the Trump administration. He's been a cultivator of uh, kind of a generation of very conservative young lawyers, men and women both. Um, he hasn't had much influence inside the court because his instinct is not to compromise. It's just to say what he thinks and what he thinks has been kind of off the rails in many respects with major doctrine. But um, I'm not quite willing to write him off because I think some of those ideas have uh, penetrated uh, to almost a scary degree uh, in sort of mainstream conservative thought. So I don't think we've seen the last of his uh, of his influence. And last but not least, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, of course, was in the news massively uh, two or three years ago. 
Um, do you see him as someone with the intellectual heft to leave his signature on the court? Aside from the scandals evolved with um, here, uh, obviously with his with his earlier life uh, as a young man. Well, he's he's a smart guy. Um, you know, I don't think he's. You know, I've read things that he's the the central justice, and he's you know in a position to kind of inherit the the swing justice, the Kennedy role or the O'Connor role. I don't see that yet. Anyway. Um, He's very much on the conservative side and has failed to give the chief justice the kind of cover that one might expect uh, if he was actually playing the role that some people have ascribed to him. Uh, You know, when the court allowed the Texas vigilante abortion law, SB8, to take effect September 1st uh, uh, by a vote of five to four, it takes five votes to grant the kind of stay that was being requested. It was the chief justice and the three liberals. You know, Kavanaugh might have been a fifth vote, but he wasn't. So um, I don't see anything too distinctive about him at this point, frankly. Well, there you have it. Uh, justice is on the brink, at least according to Linda Greenhouse's wonderful new book. Um, congratulations, uh, Linda, on the book. Uh, in these strange times with justice on the brink, what else should people be reading, do you think, in addition to your new book? Well, I think fiction is always a good escape, and I'm actually reading um, Colson Whitehead's new book, uh, Harlem Shuffle, which I'm finding very enjoyable and also, you know, educational in a way. I mean, he takes us into African-American life in the 1950s and 60s uh, in Harlem. Uh, Very interesting. He did a whole lot of research. Uh, for the book. Um, I greatly admired his um, his previous book, the Underground Rail, one of his previous books, the Underground Railroad. So, um, you know, I want to read, I want to read more of Colson Whitehead right now. Well, Linda Greenhouse, a, a real honor, as I said, your new book, um, Justice on the Brink is just out. Congratulations on the book and all your work as, as perhaps America's leading authority on the Supreme Court. Thank you so much. And and I'd love to have you back on the show to talk more about the Supremes. Keep well, Linda, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or 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 CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, Uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects 
which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.